Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, if I could add my, uh, my happy Mother's Day to all of you moms, and um, if I could say to all of you who are uh, not yet moms, who long to be moms, or those who have battled through miscarriages and infertility, as my wife and I have, uh, we love you. The Lord loves you. We're with you. The Lord is with you. All right, we are in a series uh, in the book of First Corinthians, uh, a letter from a man named Paul to a church that was about five years old. And last week, uh, Paul, through some imagery that he used, took us back to the origins and the foundation of the church in Corinth. And he said that what began to tell them, to tell Corinth about the love and the grace of Jesus, to reach Corinthians, had turned into imitating Corinth. It had turned into a classic case of what we call mission drift, where you as a church just slowly and passively drift from your original why. And the way that he finished last week was with the question, what do you want? What do you want? Who do you want to be? Do, do, do you want to continue to passively drift and become more and more like Corinth? Or do you want to actively become more and more like Jesus? What do you want, church, in Corinth? And now this week, um, he's going to build off that. With no grammatical break in the text, he's just going to keep going, but he's going to address something that was going on in the church that really is almost unthinkable. But the way that it was addressed, the way that Paul addresses it, is thoroughly un-Corinthian. It's also un-American. What do I mean by that? Let me frame it this way. How many of you guys watch the show Chicago Fire? Okay, none of you? That's not acceptable. Um... Three over there. Anybody else? Nobody? Nobody. Gosh, I have work to do around here. Um, Chicago Fire, great show about fires in Chicago. Sums it up right there. Um, <laughs> um, th there was a scene in uh, an episode uh, this past week, so if I ruin this for you three, we're going to call that my bad. Um, there's a scene this past week where there's a husband and a wife who are trying to get pregnant. They've been trying, uh, and they find out that she's high risk. Uh, high, high percentage she wouldn't survive a pregnancy. And the husband comes to her and says, hey, um, I can't risk it. I, I can't risk losing you. Hey, Brian, I, I can't risk losing you. Let, let's adopt. And then she turns to him and says, Matt, you don't understand. This is a risk I'm willing to take. And by the way, it's my body, my choice. There's the air we breathe in the West. My body, my choice. But what if my body, my choice, is like a group of kids playing Marco Polo on 610? A game meant for a pool being played on a freeway. Would it be loving to just pull up a chair and watch? Would it be loving to run back to the house, pop some popcorn and say, hey, come grab a chair. You got to see this game. It's a great one. The text that we are going to sit under today is going to be hard for some of us. For some of us, it is going to feel unloving. It is going to press into our definitions of love. And in a culture, in a context, the modern Western Culture, which really is not that modern if you're a student of history, cyclical. 
where our anthem is love is love and my body my choice where love gets reduced to endorsement to love someone is to endorse what they do Paul is going to step into that and he's going to press into that and he's going to ask the question is that even love and in so doing if we will listen he will redefine what love is for us and in redefining what love is for us he will define the kind of community the kind of distinct community Jesus wants us to be let's go Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Pagans, that's, that's just the word for Gentiles or nations or, in the context, think non-religious people. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, here's what's going on. You, you've got a guy sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, we know it's a stepmother because if it were his mother, it would have been more explicit, and there's a different way of saying that. Uh, but you've got a man here sleeping with his stepmother. Something that it says even the pagans wouldn't tolerate. Even the non-religious Corinthian neighbors of yours would be outraged and disgusted. They wouldn't even tolerate that. But you, church... You're doing nothing. And so Paul steps in and says, are you not arrogant? He calls them arrogant for doing nothing. But here's the question. Why arrogant? I mean, why arrogant? It would seem like cowardly is just as good of an option. So why arrogant? Well, here's, here, here's why. Sleeping with your stepmom was a direct violation of Jewish law. Leviticus, you, you were cut off from the people but it was also a direct violation of Roman civil law. And you know what the punishment was for breaking, for committing this crime under Roman civil law? You were banished to an island. And so what the church is doing is functionally saying, hey, listen, Jewish law, we don't have to listen to you. Roman law, we don't have to listen to you. We're above you both. And in fact, we're going to be the one community that's loving and accepting. We're going to finally be that one community that doesn't kick people out. We're above the law. But that's not all that was going on here. There was a reason why they were so accepting of this particular guy. If someone were to violate civil law, um, you couldn't bring a charge against somebody who was of a higher class than you. So if I could kind of bring use modern language for clarity, um, think lower class, middle class, upper class. If you were lower class, you couldn't bring a civil charge against somebody who was middle class. And if you're middle class, you couldn't bring it against somebody who was upper class. You had, to, you had to bring civil charges to people who are on your same social tier or below you. And so because this was commonly known, uh, commonly uh, it, it was something that people were aware of happening, uh, but nothing had been done about it consensus is this must have been a social elite. And then D.A. Carson, I think rightly, rightly deduces in the context of Corinthians, here's what was happening. The church was saying that it's better to have him among us, even doing this, and get the esteem of our Corinthian neighbor for his presence among us than to kick him out and deal with the shame that would come from it. And Paul is saying, is this not the height of arrogance? Is it not the height of arrogance to care more about what your Corinthian neighbors think of you than what they think of Jesus? 
Is that not the height of arrogance? And in the context linked to chapter 4, I think Paul would say, listen, you, you can't live for the esteem of Corinth and love Corinth at the same time. You can't sell your soul to longing for their esteem and love them at the same time. Purge this man from among you. Remove this man from among you. But this brings us to something that I need to address because it's a, a common question that I'll get relative to passages like this. And I think it's, a, if I'm honest, I, I really do think it's an understandable and fair question. And the question goes something like this. I thought the church was supposed to be a hospital for the sick. A hospital kicking somebody out doesn't seem like what they should be doing. It doesn't seem loving to do this. And I think Paul would address that in the way that he would address it, not feeling loving to do this to somebody, is in the word that he uses for arrogant. Basically, Paul invents a word here for arrogant. Um, it's not used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I couldn't find it in Corinthian culture anywhere. Uh, it, first place I could find it is in the book of Corinthians and then some later church fathers. Paul uses it six times. It's used one other time outside 1 Corinthians. But in Corinthians, he uses it six times. Four in chapters four and five, and then there's two others. And the two other uses of this word arrogant that Paul invents, I think gives a window into a, uh, an arrow, I mean a, a lens into the heart of Paul in this first time. Here's the other two. First Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, puff up. Same word. It makes arrogant. But love builds up. And so right off, he's contrasting arrogance with love. Here's the second place he uses it. Famous passage. You've all read it at weddings or heard it read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. So whatever is sitting in the heart and mind of Paul when he pens this word, whatever he thinks of this word, it is the opposite of love. In Paul's mind, love is here, this word is over here, and they collide, and they do not blend. But the question remains, why would Paul think of it as loving to remove somebody from their community? Well, he answers that for us. Verse 3. For though absence in body, I am presence in spirit. And as if presence, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is presence, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. A lot going on in these few little verses, but I need to pull our mind's eye into this. When you are gathered together, the power of our Lord, deliver this man. Hand this man over for this, to Satan, which is to set him outside at the church, outside the place where Jesus reigns, for the destruction of his flesh, that's his sinful nature, that in the return of Christ, his spirit might be saved. And the key... I think the key to understanding and seeing the heart of Paul and therefore the heart of God in this phrase, in this little set of verses, is in the word that he uses for deliver. This word that he uses for deliver, to deliver him over to Satan. 
It's a word used 119 times in the New Testament, over 100 of them in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and then the latter New Testament picks up and then uh, uses this word in a couple of particular ways, and one of the ways I think is instructive for what is in the mind and heart of Paul as he's saying this. So let me give you a couple of examples. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself. That's the same word. Delivered himself, handed himself. Who gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself. There it is again, up for us. Verse 25, also you've heard this one in weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Same word again. Y'all want to do one more? Say yes, we're going to do one more. There we go. We're so united in this stuff. I just love it. First Peter 2.23, probably as applicable as any to what we're talking about in Corinthians. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, 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 but, but, but continued entrusting himself. Same word. Delivered himself, handing himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the point. In using this word, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do for this man what Jesus did for us. Hand him to a death that leads to life. Hand him to a death. Deliver him to a death that leads to life. Here's the pattern in the Bible. Cross before resurrection, death before life. It's the pattern in the life of Jesus and therefore the pattern in the Bible. And Paul, if I could pick up on our analogy that we've used, I think Paul would say, to not do this for him. Keyword, for him. This is not doing something to somebody. This is doing something for somebody. I think Paul would say, this is the equivalent of a doctor looking at their patient, not wanting to say anything about the cancer because they're afraid they might not want to be my friend. This is the equivalent of a doctor looking at his patient, knowing there's a tumor inside of you, and that tumor is eating you alive from the inside, but I'm not going to say anything because I want you to be my friend. What could possibly be more unloving than that? Is it conventional? No. Does it make Corinthian sense? No. Does it make modern American sense? No. But what about the gospel follows conventional wisdom? Answer, nothing. From the beginning of the book of Corinthians on, the gospel is foolishness. Paul is saying, if you love them, not just the community, but if you love that man, you follow the wisdom of God and treat the tumor. If you love them, you follow the wisdom of God and you treat the tumor. But now in verse 6, Paul is going to take a turn, and it's a turn that I think I have misunderstood for years. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, let me tell you how I've always read this. I've always read this um, equating the leaven to the man sleeping with his stepmom. Like, his presence is going to ruin the whole thing. But how does he begin at verse 6? Your boasting is not good. You see, there's a pivot back to the church. There's a pivot where Paul goes back to the church, speaking to the church about the church, not to the church about that man. Your boasting is not good. And so here's what leaven was back in the day. Maybe it still is. But here's what leaven is. It was dough that was held over from last week's baking, that you would take the little piece of dough, put it in the next week's baking, and then it would ferment, and then it would cause the the, the dough to rise. This was practical and helpful, but it wasn't hygienic. Diseases got passed fairly easily like this, and Gordon Fee picks up on that commentator, theologian, this is what he said, in the New Testament, leaven became a symbol of the presence by which an evil spreads insidiously in a community until the whole has been affected by it. So it was in Corinth. Their problem, their problem was that they were not taking this matter seriously either the evil itself or, or their danger of being thoroughly contaminated by it. Fee's point, listen, church in Corinth, him being there, it's a problem. Like what he's doing, problem. That's an issue. But he's not the one that's going to ruin your community. You are. His presence his actions are not what is going to ruin your community. Your unwillingness to do anything about it is. Saying his presence is an issue, but it's not the real issue. The real issue is your pride that's keeping your mouth silent. That's the real issue. This is why he says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you, not he, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. I think this is one of the most pastoral little phrases from Paul in the New Testament. He's saying, listen, Corinth. Listen to me, Corinth. Your arrogance, that's the old you. That's the old you. That's not the new you. There was an old you. There's a new you. Go back to chapter one, Corinth. You are in Christ now. You are not that old lump. You're a new, distinct lump. You're a new you. Stop living like the old you. Become who you are. Become who you are, Corinth. Become that new, distinct community in Christ. Become who you are meant to be, and you are meant to be a distinct community in Corinth for Corinth. How do I know that you are meant to be a distinct community, you ask? He says in verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Passover lamb, what is that? If we went back to the book of Exodus, which is an earlier book in the uh, Old Testament, um, Israel is captive in Egypt. Um, God sends a series of plagues to try to get them free. Egypt's not listening. Uh, their hearts are growing more hardened. And then one night, he comes and he says, hey, listen, here's what you're going to do. My people, you're going to take a lamb and you're going to sacrifice it and you're going to put the, the blood on your doorposts. And then... And then in chapter 12, verses 20, I mean 12 and 13, he says, I'm going to pass the land of Egypt. And I'm going to strike down the firstborn. But when I see the blood on your doorpost, I'm going to pass you over. 
And Richard Hayes, who I've just thoroughly impressed with his work on Corinthians, he's a theologian at, at Duke University, says the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the houses marks Israel out as a distinct people under God's protection, spared from the power of destruction at work in the world outside. In the same way, Paul's metaphor suggests the blood of Christ marks the Corinthians as a distinct people. You see, he's saying, listen, Jesus didn't simply die for your sins. He died to create a new and distinct community. And that new and distinct community, he's saying, Corinthians, Jesus didn't die so that you could be like Corinth. He died so you could love Corinth enough to be different than Corinth. Jesus didn't die so that you could be like Corinth. Jesus didn't die so you could be like the Heights or like Houston or like anything else in your life. He died so that we together as a community would be distinct, such a community who has such love for our neighbor that be willing to be weird and strange and awkward, be who we are. We can't love Corinth and be like Corinth at the same time. And in verse 8, he says, let us, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in Christ, our communal life is meant to look like pure motives that value truth. And pure motives that value truth do not look at cancer and say it's no big deal. They do not look at a tumor in a brother or a sister and say, it's just not a big deal. And so in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, this is a previous letter that's not part of the scriptures, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He, he, he paused and he's saying, listen, I, when I say don't associate with them, I, I do not mean don't associate with your neighbors those outside of the church. I want the church to have a redemptive presence in society, Corinthian church. I, I want you to have a redemptive presence in society. I want you to be thoroughly un-Corinthian, but not anti-Corinthian. I want you to be un-Corinthian so that you can be for Corinth. That's why in verse 11, it says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even, not even to eat with such a one. First, we have to recognize something that he is present active verb. This is not, um, hey, you had a, uh, that mistake you made like seven years ago, sorry man, you're out. This is an ongoing, active lifestyle. That's what it's speaking to here. And if that person bears the name of brother, he says, don't even eat with them. Don't even eat with them. The redemptive presence in society requires the church to be a peculiar and strange, weird, counter-cultural people. And redemptive presence means that we live from our acceptance in Christ, not for the acceptance of our neighbors. And the way that that looks here is it looks like this. If your prostitute is a neighbor, 
Back up. Flip that. <laughs> I don't know what to do right now. So... If you have a prostitute, we're going to talk afterwards, okay? <laughs> I'm going to start sweating in a second. All right. If your neighbor is a prostitute, have a meal with them. If your brother is, don't. If your neighbor is a prostitute, have a meal with them. If your brother is, don't. And you know who the model was for this? Jesus himself. Jesus who would dine at a table with prostitutes after they made their money. But not Judas after he made his. In fact, the only meal that Jesus had with Judas after he sold him out was to tell him, hey, I know what you did, and to offer to him what would become for Judas the cup of wrath. If you've ever read this passage or you're new to Christianity and you've ever wondered, hey, why a meal? Why a meal? Like, why, why, not, um, why not don't have any business dealings with them? Why did it say don't even eat with such a one? It's because there's something holy and beautiful about a meal together and because there's a meal to come in the new heavens and new earth where we are going to sit around a table being hosted by our king and we're going to hold up a glass with the good stuff and we are going to celebrate all that God has done in us and through us and for us. And barring this person from your table is Jesus' way of inviting him back to his. Barring this brother from your table is Jesus' way of saying, come back to mine. Does this seem logical? Of course not. But God is not bound by your logic. In fact, every culture under the sun has got some culturally acceptable, logical way that the world is meant to work, and somewhere in there, Jesus and his gospel presses back against all of it and corrects and challenges all of it. It's how we know the gospel is true and not culturally derived. Everywhere. And so he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I thought I wasn't supposed to judge. Paul is saying, hey, listen, those outside the community of faith, we don't judge them. That's not our job. Like the Lord judges them. We don't, we don't judge them. We are to judge one another. And what that means is we're to call one another to life in line with Christ, to live our life in line with who he is and where we are not. We step in and we with courage, love, and a lack of arrogance, we speak to one another about it. And D.A. Carson, and I want to read you this quote, and I, I do a lot of quotes um, pretty often for a lot of reasons. I'm glad to share these sometimes why, but let me tell you why I wanted to read this quote from D.A. Carson. Because D.A., if you don't know who he is, he's a theologian who's in his 60s, 70s, 
Um, he's older. Most of us are not. M- most of us are pretty young in this church. So he's got 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of looking at um, a society and the church to speak into this, not, you know, the nine hours that I have. And he said, the ease with which the present day church often passes judgment on those outside of the church is at times matched only by its reluctance to take action to remedy the ethical conduct of its own members. We have reversed Paul's order of things. We have reversed Paul's order of things. He's saying, listen, we have spent so much time dishing out judgment to our neighbors and so-called grace to one another that we lost our redemptive presence in society. And if we want to be the redemptive presence that Paul wants us to be, we need a new definition of love. We need a definition of love that redefines the kind of community that we are. We need a definition of love that defines not just who we are, but who we're not. We are not Corinth. We can't love Corinth and be like Corinth at the same time. We need a new definition of love. And if we want to be the people that Jesus wants us to be, we have to let Paul redefine how we see the world, how we understand what love is, and we have to let it lead us to becoming a community that does not look at cancer and say, hey, no big deal. We have to be a community willing to look at one another and say, listen, what I see in your life, it looks like cancer. And what if we were willing to be a community who would call something cancer when it was stage one? Like, what if we didn't look at one another, wait until what we see in their life becomes stage four? What if we were willing, can I give you an example? Let me give you an example. Somebody rebuking me, ready? I know y'all are all perfect, you don't have any issues, I'm not, I'm not that. Um, I, like there, there are times we're leaving somewhere and I can get frustrated with the amount of time it's taking the kids and then I will just grab the easiest one to grab and take them out to the car and I'll load them in the car and that'll be, uh, then I'll have to wait. And my wife, who's a better person than I am, will say goodbye and be loving and I will just be ready to go. A guy in my parish about um, a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, said, hey, can we get together for coffee? I thought he was going to complain. I was like, oh gosh, I don't have time for that right now. Um, and we sat down, and he said, hey, listen, let me, let me tell you an observation that I've seen. I've seen this, and I'm wondering if there's not a pattern underneath it. And I'm, and I'm wondering what, what we should do about it. Here's the point. That was him going, hey, listen, I see an issue in your life, Brandon, and I want to I wanna get to it while it's stage one. I want to love you enough to be honest with you while what I see is in its infancy. What if that was the kind of community we are? To do that, we've got to be willing to take the words of God seriously. We've got to be willing to sit under and live out some of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Some of the passages like this one that collide most directly with our Western culture. And we've got to recognize that God's definition of love is far more full and robust and beautiful than ours. That's the kind of people Christ wants us to be. Let's pray.
Father, I know that there are five hours of content we could have talked about on this passage, and we had 35 minutes. I know there was much left unsaid. I pray that you would take the few words we did say about this passage, and you would let 1 Corinthians 5 speak to us and shape us and mold us as a community. That we might be the kind of people, the kind of community that you long for us to be and want for us to be. That we'd be a community whose love, for whom the word love gets redefined, and it's a love that leads to holiness. That in our distinctiveness, that we might actually have something to offer our neighbors. Your son and your son crucified. Let that be us. May that be us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.